0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Erin Claybow. Erin Claybow is a mother of four who teaches biology and neuroscience at Hampton Sydney College. Her research focuses on understanding neurodevelopment across the lifespan by examining changes in neuronal anatomy and physiology and by exploring new ways to cultivate empathy and creativity in children. Erin writes for the popular media, and her scientific research has resulted in many peer-reviewed journal articles. Erin Clabo is the author of a new book with Sounds True called Second Nature, How Parents Can Use Neuroscience to Help Kids Develop Empathy, Creativity, and Self-Control. It's a true guidebook, a neuroscientifically informed guidebook for parenting. I know you'll enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Aaron Claybo. Aaron, I think of you as such an all-accomplishing person. You're the mother of four children, and you have a PhD in neuroscience. So to begin with, tell me a little bit about your four kids, how old they are, introduce them to me and to our listeners.
1: Sure. Um, I have two boys and two girls, which was no fault of mine. <laughs> and then um, they are 8 and 10 and 12 and 14 right now.
0: And <laughs> you got your Ph.D. in neuroscience, and at a certain point the light went on for you that what you were learning, the science of the brain, could be applied to parenting. How did that connection emerge for you? Uh, Well,
1: I had um, my first son when I was about halfway through my PhD program, Um, and then I defended my dissertation when I was pregnant with my second child, a girl, Um, and then I took a year or so off and did science writing from home, trying to kind of reassess um, what we were going to do as a family, Um, because I knew I really loved neuroscience, but I didn't know Um, if I wanted to be in the lab all the time, and I really liked being with the kids, being home. Um, So I was trying to kind of figure out how I could do both and do them both well, which is a hard thing for moms, I think, especially in this day and age, where you're supposed to be excellent 100% at two things at the same time. (laughs) Um, And we started kind of thinking about how best to raise our kids. And I think... I read every parenting book that was out there. Um, And some of them seemed um, very rigid and very parent-focused and put the child on a schedule and tried to kind of mold the child to the environment. Um, And then some were more um, very child-centered and kind of let the child dictate the rhythm of the household. And I felt like both didn't really work for me. Um, And so I kind of started trying to find one that was in the middle and that was more evidence-based than some of these other ones, and I didn't find anything. Um, And so that was where this book came from or grew out of, is this desire to know kind of what really works, not just like on a psychological um, level, but I'm a molecular biologist, and so I'm very interested in what's going on got a DNA level and a protein level and, and neurons and how they connect. And I was keeping these two things very separate. And so I was looking at the behavior of my kids and wondering what to do and how to kind of control it. And then I was doing in the lab these things about neurons and growing them in dishes and seeing if they connected and looking at how the genes were changing. And I was trying to put them together, both them together. So this is the product of me understanding that actually all the behavior is rooted in what's happening in the DNA and a protein level in the neurons and trying to explore how to bring some of that basic science um, into our lives in a more meaningful way so that people understand it, aren't put off by it, and um, can actually use it. And not, I mean, you don't have to be some you know, amazing scientists to be able to use these discoveries that people have been working so hard in the lab.
0: Right. Good. I'm glad you don't have to be an amazing scientist because let's go ahead and talk (laughs) to the parents out there who are listening or saying, look, I, I don't know. I don't have the time right now to study neuroanatomy and, you know, deep insights from molecular biology. Just tell me what are the key takeaways from the science that I need to know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's so easy because it's, it's literally just practice. And I think as parents, we get very overwhelmed because we are feeling like we have to be on all the time. And we always are being these guides and these mentors and these teachers. And we care so much about our kids and how they turn out. But then we get just like train wrecked by the tantrum that they throw sure. after school when they won't put their lunchbox on the kitchen counter. And we don't know how to get from one to the other. Yep. But what I realized is... Um, when we put our kids in school for the first time, what they were teaching them all day long, I felt like was not the the skills that was going to get them to this amazing adult that I wanted to one day go and like have a drink with or have lunch with one day, somebody that I really liked to be around. Yeah, and they were teaching them, you know, things that they need to know: math, arithmetic, things like this, um, reading but they were not doing any conflict resolution and my kids were coming home just shattered at the end of the day. So I started thinking about, okay, if my kids are getting taught this, they're kind of getting taught to this test, right? The the teachers in our public school system, anyway, were definitely teaching to the assessments at the end of the year to get them to pass it. And so I started thinking about, like, what is this test that I want my kids to be Uh able to pass? And so I came up with the answer I think most parents came up with is that you want your kids to be happy. You want them to be successful. And usually those two things will go hand in hand because you don't really have a sense of peace unless you're happy with where you are in your life. And typically that means you've done what you set out to do. Yeah. And so thinking about the skills in a really deliberate way, being intentional about the couple of things that I wanted to foster in them um, with these practices um, is kind of where I arrived at these three skills. And so... I went and started looking in the literature and finding what the research says what um like kind of successful kids have and it came up with these three things they're creative they're empathetic and they have self-control and so when i found study after study that showed that these things were in successful kids who became successful adults then i also figured out that you can teach all these things which i didn't know when i first started this journey i i felt that you could teach empathy, some parts of empathy, just because I've done some work with autistic kids before, and I kind of had gotten in that literature, but I didn't really know that you could teach creativity. I kind of thought that you were just born with a creative slant or not, but you absolutely can be taught. And I know that we work all the time with kids on self-control, but I felt like it didn't really work. Like People are always trying to teach kids self-control and they're still not sitting in their seats, and they're trying to teach them too young. Um, but this, the, they all come together in self-regulation. And so what I found is that if you teach two skills, it'll strengthen the other skill and vice versa. And so what I realized is because everything practice-based works the same way, whether you're looking at a connection between two neurons that you're electrically stimulating in a dish and it makes it stronger, a practice, like a like an experience that you place in the path of your child that they have to go through in order to get to the other side, does the same thing. So you're activating pathways that will get stronger. So if we know deliberately what experiences that we want them to have to culture certain skills, then you basically are just using practice to change their neural networks in a way that make it so that... The pathways that are most frequently activated will then be more likely to be activated the next time. So if you're actively working on empathy with them by talking about feelings, talking through situations, saying, what do you think that person feels right now? If you're using these things with conflict resolution with them, you know, even when you're parenting and have a conflict with them then this is practice for them, and those pathways in them will get stronger. Even if they're not like purposefully doing it, if the parent is purposefully doing it, it works the same. The neurons are still connecting together and getting stronger.
0: Now, one thing I want to make sure is clear for our listeners is you take these three skills, creativity, empathy, and self-control, and you're saying when you put them all together, if you have built the skill, the capacity of all three— that will give you this great holy grail of self-regulation how did these three skills add up to self-regulation and why is it this holy grail of human capacity
1: well i think that one of these skills makes the other ones more likely to happen so if you take for example um a situation where you need a lot of self-control. So you can even say it's a kindergarten classroom where somebody has to sit in their seat. This happens every day. So this child, if he has good self-control, he can sit there and he can not talk during the lesson. But if he's able to tap into some of these other things, he's going to be way more likely to first be motivated to do it and second, um, be like have the, the actual capacity to do it. So if he... You know, in a creative way, can come up with other things to occupy his time. If he really just has to sit there for some reason, you know, he can come up with a game that he can play with himself. Um, if he thinks about how empathy can be rolled into that he can think if he acts up but the impact that'll have on other people how that make, make other people feel he can think about the situation he can be creative about foresight what will happen if he does x y or z if he's able to kind of predict the future you know, if he acts up, he's probably either gonna get sent to the principal or he's gonna get a D on the assignment, or he's gonna to have to go sit, you know, at a different chair all by himself. So they all play off each other. So if he has no creativity, then he's got no way to entertain himself. He's got no way to think of all the possible solutions to his problem that right. he has or the impact that it'll have on other people. And if he's got no empathy, then he probably would only do sit there for himself, but won't think about the impact on other kids learning or on how his mom's gonna feel when he comes home with another note from his teacher or about the teacher and how she has to get through her lesson so they all they all build on each other
0: okay so now I know in your book second nature you talk about how within your own family of four kids with your husband etc you've made it explicit this is what we're doing in our family we are creative we're empathic And we exercise self-control. And I was like, how did you sell that to your family? (laughs) How does anybody sell that to their family? I mean, it seems a little abstract, complex, sophisticated, something like that. How did you get all four of your kids enrolled in this?
1: Well, it's funny because we never use those words.
0: What words do you use? We,
1: you, we do these things. But I think if I said empathy, my kids would kind of look at me. But we talk all the time about, okay, so there's a conflict. And they'll come up and they know what... This, what the system is and what they're going to have to do and say in order to re-enter the family nucleus. Like they, they need to go take some time for themselves after a conflict. And when they come back, if they're like the perpetrator, they need to say what they did because they, they need to own it. They need to say how they think it would make that person feel that they did it to them. And then they have to say what they would do differently next time. And those things together collectively are empathy right? And they're also creativity because they have to come up with another way to fix the situation. And it's just what happens. Like that's just our conflict resolution. And I don't call it those things, but that is what it is.
0: Okay. Have you made any declaration within the family about what our value system is? Um, I I kind of do
1: these little like sayings or mantras, you know, but I, they don't have those words in them. So I'll say, you know, the only person you can control is yourself, right? Or or I'll say, you know, things along those lines, like, um, you know, it's bigger than just you. It's not about you. These kind of things. I think a lot of parents say it, but when you put them with these nuggets of like every day, these kids will be exposed to, how somebody thinks how somebody feels or some kind of a creative thing that will then end up enhancing self-control. I also do an awful lot with power shifts. So, um <laughs> like for example, um my one of my daughters this week like I'm trying I was trying to write an article for an online um outlet and really the article that I wanted to write was how can I get my daughter to stop hissing at me? Like <laughs> She, she was being disciplined, and instead of just kind of, like, talking to me, she hissed at me.
0: and it's what, what does that mean, she hissed?
1: Like, like a oh, little that's, oh, animal. Oh, she was, yes, she was that. Like literally oh, wow. hissing that, at me. That would annoy me. Yes, so much. And so, like, the first time, I was kind of like, did you just hiss at me? But then it kind of kept happening over a couple days. And... There were, you know, go to your rooms. There were some, you know, this is how it makes me feel. This is what this looks like. You know, you need to take some time. How could you handle it? Like We did all these things. It's still happening. And then her little brother started hissing. I'm like, okay, this can't happen. And I really gave a lot of thought to this because she's having kind of a difficult time right now. And so... I know that I can't control if she hisses. I, like you can't control anybody, right? What about
0: the go to your room strategy?
1: So you definitely can go say go take some time, and when you can respond appropriately, come down and we can talk it out. We can have this conversation. We've done that, but then the next day, if I get another hiss, we're there again. Right? Okay. So I felt like she was doing this in some kind of like she had power in that hiss. Um, and so what I ended up doing is just going over and sitting down with her when we were not having conflict. And I was just like, I really want to learn how to hiss. And she was like, looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, no, really, do I do it like this? And I started kind of doing, doing a hiss. And she was like, no, 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 you don't do it like that. You got to move your lips back and your teeth. had to, Like she's showing me how to do it. And I like, I nailed it. I like could hiss like nobody. And like, <laughs> But she's, like, looking at me, and she's, like, you could see she was kind of pleased and, like, also kind of embarrassed at the same time. And so then now I kind of took it from her. So the, the hiss doesn't have power anymore, right? Because, like, now I can hiss. And with that, it gave her the power back in the situation. She was able to teach me something. I wasn't against her. I was coming on her side. And this was, like, maybe 10 days ago, and we haven't had another hiss since. And so... I feel like there's there's something behind everything that's happening. I'm not condoning the hissing. She knows perfectly well it's rude, it's not okay. I started to get super annoyed. But I started trying to think about how we can shift this so that she feels heard. I don't want to hear her hiss, but something is going on with her where she feels powerless. She, I know she's having a hard time with a particular situation that she's going through, and she doesn't have the words to articulate it. So you know, we do this, and then you know, then we try to label the emotions. You know, how are you feeling when you're hissing? You know, how like we work, we work through all these things. But I feel like parents really need to have a lot more creativity in the way that we parent as well and understand that these are little adults in some ways with skills that are not developed at all and it's up to us to kind of
0: okay do let's take the parent who's trying to complete a writing assignment of some kind who's just unbelievably irritated who says you know what i'm going to do I'm going to take my kid. I'm going to lock them in their room or just some kind of like other move. Like, no, this is not my time to get creative about how to solve your problem. This is my time to finish my assignment.
1: Oh, I wasn't creative when she was hissing at me. I was creative later. Like. I don't, th- I don't think there's room for creativity when you're reactive and you're angry and, and you're in a situation like that. Like the creativity in a lot of ways has to be these deliberate things that happen ahead of time. So it has to be, how can I set up this situation to prevent this from happening again? This is in the reflection in the space afterwards. I don't feel like anybody's at their best when they're in the middle of a conflict situation. But I also feel like parents need to put themselves in timeout too. Like if you're having a reactive situation as a parent, you shouldn't be actively parenting. You should take that break. And it depends how old your child is. So if you are on a writing assignment and you've got a kid who's doing that, I mean, it depends on how old they are. If they're old enough, you could lock yourself in a room and finish it. Right. And they could be out. I mean, you could also send them to their room. And I certainly do that. And when we do timeouts, I use them pretty differently. I'll have them go on timeout without a designated time that they can come out. And I'll say, you know, when you're ready to talk about this and they know those are the things that they're going to have to say. Like, this is what I did. I own it. This is how it made you feel and the impact. And this is what I'll do next time.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because you call yeah. it your out method. Yes. O-U-T. Yes. And I, I really like this. I thought it was a very brilliant part of the book. So O stands for owning the action. Mm-hmm. U is understanding how your action affects people. And then the T is telling how you'll do it differently next Mm -hmm. time. First of all, I thought here as an adult, I could use this in some of my exchanges with people. And one of the things I really liked is you say that just saying, I'm sorry, isn't good enough. And, you know, often when I hear people even just, you know, this is just me in, in my workplace environment, and somebody will come say, you know, I'm really sorry. And I think to myself, is that it? That's all I got? That's all you got for me? Like, it's not enough. doesn't feel complete. And I know you write about this, so unpack that a little bit for our listeners.
1: Yeah, I think one of the other things that I end up saying a lot as a parent is, you know, I don't don't want your sorry. I want you not to do it again. And I think that the out strategy helps that. It prevents it from happening in the same way. And it's part of this scaffolding that parents can do where you want to show them the right way to do it. And if you talk them through the right way to do it, it's kind of like this virtual um, behavior where it's like you're imagining it. And so it's not as strong as actually doing it, but it can still lay the groundwork for that behavior to happen in the future and those neurons to be strengthened. Because, If you imagine, okay, if I'm in this situation and I want to hiss or whatever next time, and instead I say, you know, that makes me feel terrible and I'm going to my room for five minutes right now, and you already envision yourself doing it, you're way more likely to do that the next time if you've already thought it through in your head. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple kids that are more the out who we end up having to do this all the time, this, you know, come back, and it's basically like a a honed apology that actually might be effective. And then I have one or two kids that are more on the receiving end of this a lot. And so we have another one for when you feel wounded or wronged Uh by someone How does that go? That one, the acronym is STAFF. And it's basically, we came up with that one um, for my daughter, who was being a little bit mean girl bullied uh, in third grade. And we didn't really have any tools to help her through that. And so we ended up doing a lot of this where it's basically the opposite. So it's tell them how it makes you feel, right? And then you're ending up telling them that it's not okay and then telling them how you want it to be different. So it's kind of the inverse of it. And then the Fs were for uh, find um, someone else to play with, find another friend or find a teacher if it got really bad. Um, but I feel like you should be able to be on both sides. And this, for the the one where you're being bullied, it was important that it didn't require participation by anyone but your child. Or even for me, I actually have used it in a situation where I felt uncomfortable and didn't know why. I've definitely, you know, said it's not okay, and said how I felt, and said, you know, this is what would be okay. So it's helped me with conflict resolution as well.
0: Okay, I want to throw out. For you, what seemed to me to be some of the challenging aspects, you tell me how your method the method you 've learned is can I call you a neuroparent sure is that sure is that uh, <laughs> the, the, your approach as a neuroparent, how you do it, so your kids are on their electronic devices and it's time for a break. You actually want to have real conversations with them. Like maybe not have them bring their electronic devices to the dinner table or out with you or whatever. How do you handle all of that?
1: Well, there's the good way to do it and then there's the fresh rate way to do it, which I did yet. I did my fresh rate way yesterday, which was I pulled the power cord on the router for the internet. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that's not the way that's not the ideal way to do it. Um, usually These things work okay because we have really clear rules about them. And so they are posted, and um, we came up with them as a family. So everybody basically had to agree to these rules, and we came up with them collectively so everyone was okay with them. But
0: but just that process even, tell me about that. I mean, I could imagine one could go like, no, I'm not going to agree to that. No way. Absolutely well, not. And no. so
1: it kind of depends on age. So we've got a, a, we've got a high schooler, a middle schooler, and two elementary school. And so the rules are different for the three kind of brackets. Yeah. Um, and the, the young ones, they don't really push back very much. But the older two definitely do. And what I've realized with them is as they grow, you got to adapt and change. And when they start breaking the rules a lot and getting a lot of pushback, sometimes it's just time for the rules to change. So especially with my oldest – You know, his electronic rules, I think, were not in line with what his friends were doing. And that caused a lot of uh, kind of resentment with him. And so we ended up coming up with different rules for him just this year, which is more probably than I feel comfortable with. But what I've realized with him in particular is those kids are connecting over these video games. They're talking with each other. They're kind of in each other's houses virtually. You can hear what's going on in their friends' houses in the background, which I didn't really realize. I can definitely hear like parents yelling at their children to get off in the other houses. But we, we work and we work until we come up with something that everyone agrees with. It might not be the first choice for him, but he sees that we're trying to meet him where he is. So, you know, if it's something that's grade dependent, then we might say, okay, it's going to be like this. And if you have this GPA, then you can bump up because if you're getting your stuff done, you do not really mind if you play a little more. Um, So I feel like coming with good faith In everybody's part including the parents to making rules kind of like a democracy even though it's not a democracy everyone just needs to be heard so I try to get away from the numbers or I want x amount of time or minutes or whatever and kind of say why do you feel that way and once I figured out that he wanted more because it literally was his social connection I understood it more and I was a lot more open to it because there is that component there for him so they're posted, and also the rules are posted with the consequences. He came up with the consequences. Uh-huh. So, you know, right now, um, his consequences are if he breaks the rules, he loses things for a day, and then he loses things for a week, and then he loses things for a month. Kind of in that order. And so... It's to the point now where I can just kind of look at him. and I can be like, you know, I mean, this happened actually yesterday where I went up in his room and he had his computer up there. And that is an automatic week without the computer because he's not allowed to take him upstairs. So I just kind of came down with the computer. I looked at him I'm like, why? And he was like, oh, and I'm like a week. And he's like, I know. And so it's terrible, but he knew ahead of time. And I mean, that's kind of what life is about, is like, you just have to be okay with the consequences. It doesn't have to be angry.
0: But, you know, what's interesting to me here is when I think of a lot of parents I know, and as I mentioned to you before this conversation, I'm not a parent myself, so I've observed people and their kids and these places of that seem like major hotspots of difficulty. Yeah. The rules almost always seem to be coming from the parents. We've decided that you have X number of hours, and we've decided these are the consequences. The idea of coming up with something like that as a family where you're acting like it's a somewhat democratic process, that in and of itself seems like a huge shift.
1: Maybe. I mean, I do think that that sometimes there's a top-down approach, but there's a lot of research out there that shows that kids have very strong ideas about places in their life where they need autonomy, about their own decision-making, and places where they don't. So if you make a rule about what a kid can wear, there's a lot of research that shows that they are much more likely to violate that rule because they feel like they should be able to wear what they want. Whereas if it's about being alone at home under supervision or not, something where there actually might be a safety concern, they'll adhere to those rules far better or far more frequently. And so I feel like if you let kids make the rules, then they buy in. Like it's a sense of responsibility or ownership. They did that to themselves. And it's funny because a lot of times the consequences that they come up with are worse than the consequences I would have come up with to to begin with. They're much harder on themselves when they feel like they were in control of the rules to begin with.
0: Let's take another example, like household chores, keeping, chores. keeping the house together. How do you handle that? We have
1: a chore board. And we've done lots of different iterations of this. And I don't know that I found a perfect thing. I think what's worked for me the best is honestly to change it every couple years. So when they were little, we did kind of this um, more rewards-based thing where they have magnets and they put them on their chores. And if they did them all, I mean, these are things like brushing their teeth. They're little. Then at the end of the end of the week, they could have like a half-hour date with a parent or they could have a movie. It's like little. And, you know, now we're kind of where there's probably like 16 chores that needs to get done every week. And we kind of divide it up. And right now we're doing one where the older one has one more chore, then the next one down has one less, and then the next one less so that they have amounts of chores. But we're flipping them all around. So, like, it's not like my oldest son always cuts the grass. Because I want them to be able to be proficient at these tasks. Like, I look at the tasks as life prep skills. I mean, they do help me, but honestly, it's harder for me to come after them and make sure they've done them well than to just do them myself. So I do look at that as part of parenting, not really them helping me out.
0: (laughs) Okay, take something, though, once again, brushing your teeth. Come on, it's time, it's time, it's time, it's time. You have a board in your house and the kid just says, I don't care. I don't care about spending a half hour doing whatever or what. I, I don't care. I'm not going to brush my teeth.
1: Well, what, what would I do? Um, it probably depends on the kid and the situation. Um, probably what would most likely happen is I would just say, okay, your day is ground to a halt right now. Like, you're up against this wall, you're banging heads, something is wrong, right? You're not coming here with your best self in any way. And so I probably would just say, you know what, this is, we're going to be in this situation until we've worked through it. And I would probably go have them have some quiet time and I would not even deal with the situation. Like, if it's something where you have to get in a car because we're leaving right then, that's a little harder. But I find that most things in parenting, if you take the time element out of it, it makes it so much easier, So much easier because a lot of the stuff and the processing and the decision-making happens in the space that happens after the conflict. And so I feel like being in that space and allowing them to take it, usually they'll come and they'll, I mean, depending on which kid it is, one kid would probably brush his teeth real quick after I went downstairs and then pretend like he didn't do it. Like it just depends on who it is. But um, I feel like you can't force a kid to brush his teeth. You just, you can't do it. And that's the crazy thing about parenting is you can't force your kid to do anything. You can't control their behavior. It's more about buy-in than anybody ever knew. I mean, you have these things that you want for your kid. And if they don't also want them for themselves, they won't happen.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. I want to dig into each one of these three skills a little bit more and see if I could hear from you the basics of here are the do's and some examples, and here are the key don't do this. Mm-hmm. So let's say we want to build creativity in our family. We're a creative family. What are some of the things you suggest and what would you be sure not to do? Well, it's funny, in the
1: in the book and kind of in my life approach, I almost never think about the don'ts. It's kind of it's kind of interesting that you say that. What's the do and what's the don't? Yeah. I think mostly about what's possible and what to do. Okay, so we so can actionable. just focus on that. If I think of a don't, I'll say a don't. Um, but it's mostly taking normal, all these things. or just taking normal situations and as a parent refocusing on this little bit. So, And you can do it really easily just in day-to-day stuff. For, for creativity, that's, I think, the most fun one because it's really just playing games. So if you're... Um, in the car, you can drive past and see someone in the stoplight next to you and you can be like, where did they just come from? Um, how many brothers and sisters do they have? What's their job? What was their pet's name growing up? Like just start spinning. And it's really fun, especially to do with your kids because they come up with really funny things. Um, and it's, I mean, it's bonding, it's enjoyable and you don't need anything to be creative at all. And I I feel like just putting a little exercise like that, five minutes, less than five minutes, um, like we'll go around at, at dinner time and we'll do things that are like an alphabet game and everybody has to come up with something for a theme. Um, like, what do you mean? Like, what does our dog do at home when you're at school all day? And the first person will say, you know, um, chases aardvarks and the second when we'll be um takes a bubble bath so like for the but it's like like, funny because then like they think about these things in a different way and if you do things like that a lot and like not like we did this the other day so my my daughter got um, my two daughters got bunnies for Christmas. So we're sitting in there trying to think of what to name them. And I start going through the spice drawer because literally I've come up with like 50 million names and she hates all of them. So I'm going through the spice drawer. And I'm like, clove, cinnamon, ginger. And she's like, "Ew, no. And finally I was like... Look, if you want me to keep coming up with names, you got to stop saying terrible things about my names. Like, the more ideas that you generate, the more likely it is that you're going to get the best idea. If you have a thousand ideas to pick from, you're going to do a better job than if you have two. And when you keep telling me my ideas are stupid, I'm just going to shut down. And she was like, you're right those spice names are really good what other ones are in the drawer like you could see her like literally trying so hard to hear what i was saying and to do it and then we ended up naming the the stupid bunny coco and it was in the spice drawer and we never would have got there if she hadn't like had that pause and been like okay keep going you know because there's there's no there's no bad idea I think our kids are so worried about failing that they're worried to embrace an idea that's less than perfect. And I think as parents, the more creative spins we can put on things, the better. Like things that are weird and outside the norm and obviously won't work are, they're funny, you know, they're, they're valuable and, and it doesn't have to be functional and work to have value.
0: Now, previously in our conversation, you used this interesting term, scaffolding, Mm -hmm. that a parent can help scaffold in order to develop these skills. So even here, when we're talking about creativity, scaffolding is, the way I understand your use of that term, it's kind of giving people some stepping stones along the way so they don't go from zero to a hundred, but you've built in. So even here, yeah. let's open the spice drawer, let's do it together. So help me understand scaffolding. Is that a term from science that you're bringing so. into parenting or, or did you just cr- use I think this that term? I just, this is your own yeah, creative I think here. so.
1: So uh, I think I thought about, I got it though from science because in the in the cell, if you're a scaffolding protein, other things come and they dock on you and you kind of are like this giant docking station for lots of different proteins. And so you're involved in lots of things in the cell. And so I think I was thinking about that construct, probably even more so than the construction scaffolding that most people think of, but I was thinking about it from a more neuroscience perspective. But I think in its very simplest version, it's basically just giving a foothold. So if you have, um, if you want your kid to go play for 10 minutes by themselves with a toy that, like, doesn't, you, you have to tell it what to do, like Legos or, like, building sure. blocks or trains or something like that, I think that it's really hard for kids to get started. So, like, the very most simple scaffolding would be you go in there and you like, cut, make a little world with them and say you know okay this is the store for the lego people and over here these are you know kind of the skylanders or whatever they're coming in and they're upset because their planet's on fire and they need to buy a fire extinguisher and you like set it up and you play for five minutes and then you leave you back up and you say now you play and i need to go do whatever it is dinner prep or anything and and they can They can stay there and they can continue what you started. But if you go put like a six-year-old in there with Legos and you're like, good luck, make a play castle or whatever, and you leave, they're going to spin. They're not going to know how to dig in and get started. And it's like the very basic idea about scaffolding is you're basically giving them a leg up. You're, You're helping them get started. And when you get to things like empathy, it becomes much more complicated and complex. If you think about you need to basically... Put a framework on emotional content. You need to put a framework on thought content. And then you also need to put a framework on what you can do about it. And if you just throw a kid into those three realms with no guidance, they're going to screw up every time. I mean, we screw up every time. No one taught us how to do that. I never got any kind of training in conflict resolution at all. Did you get any training growing up in conflict resolution? No, I'm
0: developing it as an adult as we speak.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's pretty much where all parents are. And so it's not surprising that as parents, we don't know how to scaffold these things because we never learned it.
0: Sure, which is a big point that I want to make. In reading your book, I had the thought, God, there's so many people I want to send this to. And then I thought, but they would have to be able to model these skills for their children. And what if? There aren't really at that level of personal development. Like, we're talking about creativity. You're a very creative woman. You've got tons of creative ideas. You know, okay, we could do it. What if a parent's like, God, oh, I don't know how creative I am. How am I going to help my kid be creative?
1: Well, I think there are little things that you can do, like this idea of embracing failure. I mean, this is a really simple thing that all parents can do. And if, if your child comes to you and won't present to you anything less than their best, that's a problem because it completely cuts you off from fostering anything underneath the absolute best and no kid's at their absolute best all the time. Like, it's impossible. Yeah. And so, like we were doing this the other day, it snowed and we were sledding and, um, they were trying to go as far as they could on their sleds. And then finally I was like, you know what, let's just celebrate failure. And so it became this huge thing where whoever was taking the worst falls, they were like rejoicing and they were trying to get the worst falls. But when they were doing that, by the end of this session, they were literally snowboarding on their little saucer sleds in a way I never could have done. I don't have that kind of balance, but I don't think they would have tried it at all if I was like, who can go the farthest and stay on? They would have clung to their little saucer and a little ball so that they could stay on. But just the shift in what's important, I feel like anybody can do, even if they feel like they're not creative at all. They can understand that there's value in things that less than perfection.
0: Okay, in developing these three skills, I'm gonna ask for a number. What percentage of impact do you think comes from modeling the skills?
1: Oh, I wonder if that depends on which skill you're talking about. Um, I would say probably the biggest percent of modeling would have to come from empathy. Because I feel like empathy is something that we need to have the minute our kids come home from. Um, the hospital or from home birth or wherever the minute they're in this world the way that we respond to them and if we're attentive to their needs and we understand what their perspective is that sets the stage for everything and I feel like if you're not a responsive parent and you don't have your child's perspective in the forefront all the time as kind of equal to your own, that you guys are both coming to the table and yes, you're in charge and yes, you have a plan and you're bringing your kid along, but that this is, you know, the the impact that you have on them, this is, they're they're an adult in a little body. I mean, their brains are very different, but they're going to carry whatever this implication of the conversation that you have with them forever. They're going to be 35 one day and they're going to be thinking back to how you responded to them as a parent. And so that's... I think the most important percentage wise, I feel like probably I'm going to like go uh, make up a number, but I would say like 50% of empathy, I think teaching empathy has to be that you are able to understand where your child's coming from. Because if you're not able to do that, how can you be creative and come up with solutions to the problems? And how can you have self-control if you're not being sensitive to the way that, your kid feels if you just explode.
0: Okay. So let's just go into it a little bit. For someone who wasn't raised by a mother and father who were particularly empathic, they haven't developed that. How do they get on the empathy train here?
1: Oh, you're looking at one. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, that's the book. This is the path. This is how you do it. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to have been raised by people who were in, in touch with themselves emotionally, who labeled emotions at all. You could be raised by two complete narcissists and this roadmap will still work. It's, it's little and it's divided, I think, pretty well into feelings and thinking. And so if you're uncomfortable with one or the other, there's still an avenue for you. Mm-hmm. to be able to be empathetic.
0: Okay, we've talked about developing empathy in a family through conflict resolution techniques, and you've shared, I thought, some really brilliant ones. How else do we do it in our family? How else do you take the position of your kids to understand? Of being empathic? Yeah.
1: Um, I think every day I take a minute and I try to imagine what it's like to be each one of my kids. Hmm. Um And I don't do that intentionally. I think it just happens. But I think doing it intentionally is probably important. Um, And I think just checking in with them. And I I tend to do it, maybe it's a little bit self-centered in the way that I approach it. But I usually take a minute first and I try to remember what third grade was like for me. And after I ground myself there, then I think about my son who's in third grade. And I think, okay, how is his experience different and what is hard for him? But like going back to the way that I felt when I was at that age and remembering what was important to me and what I could care less about, I think is a good way to start. Like you don't want to stay there because that's not being empathic at all. That's thinking wholly about yourself. But I feel like when my kids are at such different ages, so if it's 8 and it's 10 and it's 12 and it's 14, It's hard to parent them all four at the same time, coming from the same place. So I always have to kind of do an adjust and, like, slide in where that kid is. And it takes a minute. Like, I often feel like if I had four, um, like, quadruplets, that it would be easier in some ways because they're all in the same stage of development. Mm -hmm. It gets a little harder when there's some that are still kind of really
0: children and some that are teenagers. Mm -hmm. One of the things you write about in Second Nature is that parents can't go around, you know, screaming, spanking their children, etc., and expect to be developing self-control in their kids. Parents screaming, blah, 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 and then trying to get their kids... I mean, talk some about that. Yeah. So I, I I do think that that's true, because if
1: you aren't modeling good self-control it's really hard to point a finger at someone and say have good self-control um i think that the child then will just kind of shut down you know as if it's not a not a possible skill to have if you're an adult and you've been working on self-control for 30 40 years and you still don't have it you know how can i at eight have the skill or at 10 Um, so I do feel like that's where it's really important to have these other two skills come into play so if you're if you're having trouble with self-control if you take a minute and you think about the impact that's empathy and that can help you have better self-control and you know the other one to have creativity and be like what other things could I do rather than screaming right now I think that that those two things together really bolster self-control to give you the ability to not get in like the way of yourself in some ways. Um, and I feel like self-control is something that like, we just need to step back, step back from as parents. I feel like that happens when we're reacting to situations. Um, and we, we don't have a plan. We feel an emotion in our chest and we act on it. And so, if if that happens to me and I'm parenting and I feel angry, I've learned now to I need to back off. And sometimes that's hard um, for kids. I think um, like if a if one of my child children um, really wants to talk about it and keeps pushing and won't stop, like I literally some I've definitely gone and locked myself in the bathroom before. But I, just, I just need a minute
0: because I'm not up my best right now. Right.
1: <laughs> and they they've learned. That I will always come and find them afterwards when I'm ready to talk about it. But I think that that modeling is important, too, because it gives them permission to take that time for themselves and know that they can always circle back to it, which I think is healthier in relationships long term to to be like, you know what? We shouldn't talk about this right now. We should take a break.
0: Yeah.
1: And my breaks usually are little. They're like three, four minutes. But it it makes a giant difference, I think, in our relationship. And no one likes to scream. No, I mean, it feels bad during, it feels bad after, it makes your child feel bad, and it's not like I've never done it. I mean, I think every parent screams sometimes.
0: Even the neighbors worry.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure, <laughs> for sure. But, but I don't think that it's anybody's go-to tool, because it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's not effective, and we want to be effective parents.
0: And then in terms of scaffolding as a parent to develop self-control in your kids, What have you found works?
1: Oh, self-control can be a hard one. What I've found through all the research that I've done on self-control is that you have to be properly motivated to have the self-control. So you can work a lot on goals and motivation, um, you know, discipline where there's buy-in. I think ownership is really important, that you're adhering to a set of rules that you think are important and not that somebody else thinks is important um particularly as they get older so this whole idea of like game theory and like you're both kind of in it to win this thing but you as the parent have to win it so in some ways there's a little bit of kind of manipulation in some ways that goes into getting them to buy in where they don't realize that they're buying into their own best interests so it can be complicated i think um But it's funny because there are these studies out there that say self-control is the most important thing for success, and that the amount of self-control that you have when you're in preschool, whether you choose to grab this marshmallow or wait for two marshmallows, that's so important, and that at age 32 or, you know, when you're an adult, that the levels of self-control you have are the same, and that the waiters or the delayers ended up being more successful than the the preschoolers that didn't wait, um, in terms of, you know, overall life success and incarceration rates and things like that. But what I realized is that self-control actually isn't what we should be cultivating, but instead it's this idea of self-regulation. So self-control by itself is just not doing things. Don't hit your sister, you know, don't have eight pieces of chocolate cake. This is just about don't do X or don't do Y, but self-regulation is this idea of a goal and that you're working towards it. And instead of being a no, it's a yes. So you want to get somewhere, you have to have self-control because you realize that avenue won't work, but it's using the empathy and the creativity to make a different route to a yes that works for you and also works for everybody else. So you can have healthy relationships and be successful um, for yourself so this the the shift away from self control so self control is important but it's temporary and self control is really just a tool in the way to self regulation where where you don't want to be a no about everything that's no way to live a life don't do this don't do that you want to not do that but also instead do this cuz it's a better way and you got to be able to come up with lots of creative ways to get there and you got to be able to do it in a way that's not going to make Damage You damage your relationships.
0: As we come to a close in our conversation, Aaron, I'd like to understand more how you see a family that inhabits and embodies these three skills, how that will help our culture evolve as a whole, the contribution that this type of parenting can make to our entire task we have, as a human family right now?
1: I mean, I think it would be amazing. Um, The world, if everybody had been taught compassion from the very beginning as the most important thing, but in a way that actually lets you reach your own goals, I think people would be happier. I think that conflicts would be resolved in a much cleaner way. And I think that I mean, even down to kind of leadership roles and the way that countries interact with each other, um, I think the implications would be enormous. I think that um, the medical profession would completely change. I think people would live longer. I think people um, would be able to have family lives that stick
0: Better? how would the medical profession change
1: well if you have a group of let's say a whole generation that comes up and they hit medical school at the same time already trained in an empathetic response studies have, have shown that the, your patient outcomes are way better if you are more empathetic and they train in medical programs already for this so if you have those skill sets coming in you're going to um I mean, just overall, people will be healthier. Their stress response will be better. There'll be lower disease rates. Um, people will stay married. They will um, just be, be happier overall. And I mean, you may go so far as to say that people um, maybe would have less drug and alcohol abuse because, These things are inherently rewarding. And so if you're getting rewarding behavior, activating your dopamine pathways through compassionate acts, if you're more satisfied socially, then you're probably less likely to try to seek out that stimulation elsewhere. So addictive behavior may go down. Uh, I think the implications could be enormous.
0: Your book is called Second Nature how parents can use neuroscience to help kids develop empathy, creativity, and self-control. Tell me about the title, Second Nature. How did that occur to you?
1: Well, I think that the second nature part of it is to come down to that it's all biological. So we think that some people maybe are born with creativity, born with self-control, or born with empathy. But this idea that you might not have been born with those skills completely intact. No one is born with those skills, great, but that as parents, we can place these experiences in our kids' paths so that those pathways get strengthened. And once they're strengthened, they'll be more likely to be used, and what we want is for our kids to have habits of these things. We want to make neurological habits of these three skills so that this is our kids' default way of approaching the world, of, of being, that it's second nature to them, that it's their first response to be empathetic, to rush in, to be a doer, um, to um, have these creative responses to problem solving.
0: I've been speaking with Erin Clabo and her new book, Second Nature, How Parents Can Use Neuroscience to Help Kids Develop Empathy, Creativity, and Self-Control, I think is one of the best handbooks for parenting I've ever read. Congratulations on writing it. Thank you for writing it. I think it's going to help many, many, many families. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world. Thanks for listening.